This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today, we continue our ongoing series, Building on the Right, with an interview with Andrew Kloster. Andrew's a friend of mine and senior counsel at the nonprofit Compass Legal Group. He's a longtime fixture of the conservative movement, advising clients on the new right on a wide variety of matters, criminal, civil, political, electoral, and administrative. Recently, he was chief of staff to the Wisconsin Office of Special Counsel Investigation into Election Administration. Before that, he served in the Trump administration, including concurrently as associate director in the White House Office of Presidential Personnel and as deputy general counsel in the uh, United States Office of Personnel Management. Uh, He's held a wide variety of senior positions in regulatory and legal positions in the uh, Department of Transportation and the EPA, and he was recently appointed by President Trump to serve a three-year term on the uh, Council of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Before that, he's worked at the Heritage Foundation, the Scalia Law School, and other movement groups. Andrew also hosts a Substack column titled, Right from the Ground Up. We'll speak to Andrew for about an hour. We hope you enjoy the program. So, Andrew, it's 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 so good to chat with you again. Um, now, for our James Wilson uh, Institute podcast, what I want to get started on is um, you have a, a very interesting Substack in which you're asking the kinds of foundational questions for kind of what it means to have the kind of reflections that can actually yield changes um, as far as how um, organizations on the right conceive of their mission, how they conceive of um, progress, how they conceive of metrics to measure progress. Um, And you're asking questions that um, uh, I just don't see anybody else asking um, in this period of uh, introspection for you know folks on the right. Uh, you're really the only one that uh, I've seen um, asking. You know, if we're going to take a new direction, are we trying to figure out whether that new direction um, is worth taking? Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what's led you to um, kind of you know do uh, perform these kinds of um, you know uh, thought experiments out loud, uh, but also. Um, you know, what have you seen from your, your experience um, working within organizations on the right that's led you to be, um, you know, wondering aloud these questions, probably because um, people, you know, uh, who are at, at, at the helm day to day aren't asking these questions? Yeah. And, and you know, I think with, with so many questions, people implicitly ask them or answer them with the way that they operate. But, you know, it's important, I think, to step back and try to analyze as much as you can. So I don't think I'm the only person, you know, asking these questions, but I think I'm kind of like, I consider myself a little bit like the Forrest Gump of the conservative movement or the conservative legal movement. I've been lucky to be in a number of places at the right time as a fly on the wall and, and other things. So I've kind of seen a lot of change and a lot of foibles, and I understand that many of the issues that we have on the right are not issues with the voters being in the wrong place and it's not issues with elections necessarily going the wrong way although that happens 
it's often unforced errors that we have with institutions and inertia and systems and norms that are built in. So I guess I don't know where to start other than, I mean, my, my career trajectory, I mean, I started right out of law school, you know, at FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, and then very quickly went to Heritage where I was for four years. Um, you know, I, I uh, clerked on the Seventh Circuit and then went into the to the Trump admin. Um, and I was pretty supportive of the Trump agenda pretty early on. And it was just interesting. I mean, one of the first, I saw many issues and heritage certainly, but one of the first sort of things that I noticed that was going wrong was when I, you know, came back from my clerkship, which I had accepted as a mid-career clerkship kind of a couple years in advance of when I was going to take it. So I knew it was coming and I knew it was going to coincide with the election. And part of my thought was, you know, if the Republicans win, because at that time it was well before there were any candidates in the field, if the Republicans win, you know, great, I'll be fine. And if they lose, I really don't want to be in the conservative movement at all, because it's going to be Hillary Clinton. And I've seen how Obama was marching through the institutions and really just draining the resources of the right. We have no institutional advantages, but they did the IRS targeting. Mm -hmm. And then they were deplatforming people, if you don't remember... I mean, they're deplatforming like mad now, but fast, and, you know, not fast. Well, yeah, fast and furious on, on the gun front, but also Operation Choke Point with, with re, you know, removing credit. So I thought to myself, we're really having, we're at a moment where, you know, I just need to become an expat if we don't win the presidency and and, uh, and if the culture continues to shift. But Trump, you know, ended up winning the nomination. I was very happy. And uh, I was the only staffer who was pro-Trump at the Heritage Foundation. I can say that with some authority. Some people come out and say other things now, but it was really just Rubio staffers to my left and crew staffers, I think, also to my left, but on the other side, and um, and then myself. And then so, so I go to clerk. Trump wins. I come back for the Federalist Society of Lawyers Convention, which I do every year. And I'm this was this was the twenty this was the twenty sixteen Lawyers Convention. This was immediately after he won. Trump wins. Yeah. Immediately after I come back and I'm just excited and ecstatic and happy. And I think to myself, I don't need to do anything. You know, I don't need to come there for a job, but I want to see all these people who were so negative scrambling for a job. And so I'm off in a corner of a ballroom with my friend who ended up doing the judges for McGann, who was a co-clerk, um, who I connected to at Mies when I was at Heritage. So I'd already sort of been helping out a little bit. And, um, Myself, my friend in a corner with another sort of guy who ended up to go on to be the deputy general counsel at EPA for essentially the whole administration. So some of the real sort of OG Trump admin people and nobody knew to talk to us. We were very well connected, but nobody knew to talk to us. So I'm sorry, but I'm sorry, Andrew, who, who, when you said nobody knew to talk to us, you're saying nobody at the, at the National Lawyers Convention knew to talk to us. Okay. Nobody at the National Lawyers Convention knew to speak with us, which was fine. We were kind of observing. But you'd see all these people scrambling around who two weeks earlier were kind of very negative on Trump. And then, of course, many of these people do end up going and getting jobs. People like at that, at that, one of the people scrambling for a job in 2016 at the Lawyers Convention was Sarah Flores, who ended up going and being the spokesperson mm -hmm. for Jeff Sessions. Lots of people, in other words. And that was when I first got the inkling that there was a problem. Um, Flash forward to my last job in the Trump administration when I was concurrently serving as associate director in the White House office of per presidential personnel under Johnny McEntee, and then also as the deputy and then later acting general counsel at USOPM, Office of Personnel Management. You know, um, when you flash forward to that, 
I heard the story that one of the big issues that happened was Trump didn't have an institution around him, didn't have a political base. There were no, you know, right-wing antitrust experts on the side that that, that that Trump was interested in. There were none in trade, There were, you know, other than Lighthizer, who of course was a Democrat. There were none in immigration, really. The bench was very thin. So uh, what happens is Trump gets told right after the election in 2016, you should go raise more money, you should go do a thank you tour. So instead of staffing the administration immediately following the election, the swamp goes in, tells Trump to get out of town to raise more money, and fills all these slots pretty quickly. So that was one major structural issue that I heard uh-huh. about later. But I guess that's just a point to one of the first sort of my first uh, experiences with sort of the, the stolen election of 2016, as I call it, um, and the need that we have on the right to get staffing rights. And then that points to other other institutional and structural issues. So um, I guess my background generally is, is administrative law. You know, we, when I was at the Gray Center, we obviously commiserated a lot right. uh, at Scalia Law. Um, I was uh, I served in a number of, of general counsel's slots of doing regs, you know, at DOT, at EPA. Um, and then when I had the dotted line over personnel and other issues at, at OMB um, when I was at the White House. So my interest has kind of always been organization, operations, and guts. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I come at issues. I mean, typically, and maybe this puts me in the Vermeule camp a little bit, but I typically don't put much stock in doctrine. I don't put much stock in sort of court cases and thinking that the courts are going to save us. So that kind of frees me to look at how things actually operate. And certainly when you talk with agency attorneys, they really get it. I mean, they're like, you know, what happens if we overturn Chevron? They understand really nothing will happen necessarily. A little bit will happen, but not that much. They'll still make regulations. And de facto, they'll still get deference. Um, you know, call it what you will, even if the court hmm. formally overturns Chevron. So it's little things like that. Or, you know, when the president gives a direct order, uh, you know, down the chain, there are 10 to 20 things that need to happen or more. And many people know that the president's order can be technically complied with, but the actual operational effect could be completely nullified or reversed. So, you know, in European law schools, they have classes on implementation. We don't have those in the States, but that's really kind of what my focus has been. Kind of power dynamics, incentives, structure, and then now I'm kind of applying that to the to the organizational right. You know, where, where do the donors go? What interests them? How do you structure organizations? And my day job, I you know, other than campaign and political work for some of these new right candidates, we also do, um, you know, nonprofit setup and structure and moving money around and things like that. So I feel kind of blessed and I've been in the right place at the right time many times to have kind of a front seat for, you know, good intentions going awry, basically. Mm. Well, you know, a lot, a lot to unpack there. Um, in particular, um, uh, with with your current work, and uh, I'm sure our listeners will be very interested um, in, in in hearing uh, the projects that you've you've taken on. But I do want to you know, stay for a little while longer on your experience in the Trump White House and what made you think that the problem wasn't necessarily finding. Um, you know, people so much as finding the right people and finding certain people would or would not thrive in a position until you actually saw certain people being given responsibilities or having to 
actually perform jobs that you know didn't have sort of the clearest um, description. That really, it's about um, uh, reacting and and having good instincts. I mean, what what was your experience in in in, in OPM uh, in, in in particular in in seeing um, you know sort of w- what types of people thrived versus you know the types of people who who didn't? Yeah. So. I guess, I mean, even recently I was advising, you know, as recently as a week or two ago or whatever, one of our remaining Trump Senate confirmed, uh, you know, agency members. And, uh, you know, I came across the same refrain that I heard many times, which is, you know, if only the the personnel rules were better, we could do X, Y, and Z. you know, the Title V rules, the rules that govern the civil service and the rules about hiring and firing. And it turns out, um, you know, the rules are fine. You know, they can be tweaked around the edges, but at the end of the day, if you really want to fire a particular staffer, you can do it. It just takes attention and time and political will. And time and time again, you would hear this refrain until I think I've concluded that it's kind of a cop-out for people that need an excuse to, to not do what they should be doing in the first place. And that's not to say, I mean, it's hard. Things are hard. You know, it's not always easy. There are various appeals and avenues and, and you can get your foot stuck in it. You you want to do the mission. You don't want to to uh, waste your time with, with operational details. But I guess the high, at the highest level, I would just say, um, you know, I, I, I think the failure that we had in personnel was one of political will and loyalty rather than expertise you can teach for expertise you can teach for subject matter but you can't teach for character and we needed to be hiring um, for character more than anything else and people when they go into government um, as a political appointee especially now I mean the left has hundreds of times the resources of the right on the nonprofit side and so you'll get the left does not there there's no equivalent on the left of trump town so if you recall they they would foia all of the oh yeah resumes oh yeah financials and everything mine are all online because they foia it and they're entitled to it because we have these laws in place for sunshine and then you know pro publica and, and not just pro publica but other orgs would put these online and you'd have searchable databases you'd have people uh like um Mark Joseph Stern or whomever that, that our full-time job is to be scanning the social media of Trump appointees. There's nothing like that on the right. So we basically have this entire apparatus where if you're going to want to go into government on the right, everybody hates you. You've got an entire apparatus to destroy you um, and to make sure you're unemployable. And even to this day, there are many people who are underemployed. I was just talking with someone who is essentially the general counsel at a major agency that by rights should be a VP at Exxon or something like that. Mm -hmm. Just an absolutely brilliant legal mind that did essentially four years of unimpeachable, highly sophisticated regulatory work in the energy space who is quite underemployed right now. Um, Is employed, but it's at some place that is just not even on on the level and certainly not in the industry. So, so what what is the value then of uh, you know in the in the in the late 70s uh, you know then uh, then professor uh, Antonin Scalia um, was working in the Ford White House and then Ford loses to Carter and uh, he famously said the people threw us out um, and so he lands at, at uh, 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 then this, um, this, this new, um, you know, fledgling, um, uh, uh, nonprofit called the American 
Enterprise Institute, um, where he um, is is scribbling in the pages of a new magazine called Regulation. And uh, certainly, certainly, um, uh, uh, we're all grateful that uh, he spent those years um, uh, writing in Regulation because it um, it it laid bare um, uh, just just sort of you know how 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 important uh, you know those um, those ideas would become when he would become Judge Scalia uh, on the on the D.C. Circuit. Um, in, in, in rethinking, you know, how we approach, um, uh, you know, uh, administrative, uh, administrative law. But, you know, in a sense, uh, you know, if it wasn't for that uh, uh, safety net of, of AEI, um, you know, we would have nowhere else. Um, but it sounds like you're not satisfied with um, the sinecures at places like AEI, at, you know, the conservative legal movement, places like um, Cooper and Kirk, Boyd and Gray, boutique law firms where, um, you know, you can have uh, X number of spots for, you know, for talent um, to, um, uh, uh, to, 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 you know, to, to be able to, you know, support themselves. But, you know, it's certainly not the same as having uh, – you know, a robust network of, um, let's say, uh, uh, sort of of counsel positions at major law firms, um, where people right. can come in and out of out of the administration. Um, what does that What does that kind of say for? Um, uh, I don't know. I guess you want to call it like institutional capture. Um, and 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 what's what's your thinking of you know a way to either mimic it for people on the right or or to try and overturn uh, you know or, or lay bare kind of you know how corrupt the existing institutions are. Right, and even today as we're recording it, I mean, uh, you know, Ilya Shapiro just uh, resigned from from Georgetown. Right. So. Uh, all of this is just a long way. I wasn't trying to give anecdotes. I mean, certainly with with Scalia, there are many people who who fall quite well, and there are unforeseen benefits, you know, happy faults that occur. Scalia was certainly one, and I think that there will be many in the years to come that I don't even know about right now. Programmatically, though, I'll just say this: I think there's been a blacklisting of Trump appointees, and I don't think that the institutional right has anywhere near the capacity that the left does, you know, right out of the Obama administration, people that were my age that had been given all these flowery titles that I went to law school with that were concurrently serving on the NSC and in the White House Counsel's Office, then go back to like the Brennan Center, for example, Mm -hmm. which is gigantic and well-funded. And there are thousands upon thousands more positions um, on the left than on the right. And the left-wing donors, you know, operate sort of in a coordinated fashion and they spend money, and this is stuff that I've written about, they spend money without expecting return on investment immediately or even in their lifetime. They're willing to spend for the sake of spending. I don't think we have a giving pledge on the right. We certainly have one on the left. Um, so I think there's been a blacklist. I think that the uh, absorption or the number of spots to save people on the right is very low. Um, on the other hand, I was certainly uh, to some degree pleased in this sense when we lost the election, which is that we needed the wilderness to understand who our friends and our enemies are, what the magnitude of the task is, and to help build some of these institutions. So I'm not completely negative, but I think we just need to be, you know, it's, it's hard to draw the comparisons because, you know, you can you can compare AEI. First of all, I don't think AEI is, is hiring many Trump administration folks. Um, it's certainly not our best, I would, I would assume. Um, but but to compare AEI to Brookings um, ignores the 
1,001 Fortune 500 spots right. closed. Um, every, you know, and everything in tech. And there are certainly exceptions to this rule. So I mean, people listening, you know, maybe you know a Bitcoin person or whatever in tech, you know, that you know, it's like, oh, but I'm doing this or I'm doing that. It's like, yeah, you are. That's great, but. You know, the fact that <laughs> one or two people doesn't make the same level that the, that the left has, certainly. Hmm. Um, one of the uh, more um, telling moments to kind of demonstrate the asymmetry between the right and the left uh, you know, had to do with the, the election you know, in 2020, um, where uh, only in the in the months um, and, and years afterward did we learn just sort of how much, um, for example, um, the Zuckerberg uh, Chan Foundation was, was pouring into, um, you know, state level what had been historically nonpartisan uh, uh, institutions um, to uh, get out the vote. Um, uh, but had been, you know, doing it, doing so in, in such a targeted way um, to uh, to boost um, get out the vote in uh, in in disproportionately um, democratic areas, uh, but this just couldn't be fathomed, especially in an election like 2020, which was um, you know such a you know sort of a great experiment, not only in um, uh, you know the uh, the, the mail-in ballot from, uh, from, but also just because we had never you know voted during a uh, 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 a global pandemic, um, but you know you you actually got involved yourself in in Wisconsin in uh, you know some of the some of the uh, the court cases that followed up and, and the audits, and I believe you were an election day watcher. But um, for our, for our listeners, can you tell us what made you do that in the first place, and then you know, yeah. what did you kind of uh, observe um, in in all of the different um, uh, follow-up aspects about just how there were certain institutions that were well funded and 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 uh, at the state level um, and you know were just had institutional capacities that um, on the on the left that that those on the right just either they weren't aware of or they or they just didn't have anywhere near the you know the scale and scope of right so um, you know in 2020 you know I was still at the White House and at OPM and I thought to myself, everything is terrible. We have COVID, Trump is wildly unpopular, the media is against him. He has every disadvantage that you can think of. This is awful. But I also thought that there's one thing that Trump has in 2020 that he didn't have in 2016, which was a big thing, which I thought because he won in 2016, the establishment, the RNC, the folks that didn't help at all in 2016, would be completely prepared in 2020, and that was wrong. Uh-huh. So I took my time off from the White House and um, volunteered, and I have to say it was incredibly difficult to volunteer, not because of the civil service rules, Hatch Act, all that stuff. You can take your vacation time and you can volunteer. That's totally appropriate and lawful. Um, that was not the difficulty. The difficulty was actually getting myself into the campaign apparatus. It took me two or three tries, even though I knew the senior attorneys and I was in the White House and all I wanted to do was be a grunt laborer. So that was a first red flag. Hmm. Then when I finally get connected to the campaign um, and say, I'll go to to Wisconsin, I have a family up there, I'd like to, to go to Green Bay. They said, no, 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 we're sending everybody to Milwaukee. And I basically, didn't listen to them and said, no, I'm going to go to Green Bay. I only want to go to Green Bay. That's where I'll see my uncle. I'll get him to volunteer. I'll take my dad. Um, so I went to Green Bay, and that was fortuitous because, and I also was thinking, where will I be needed? I thought, let me go to a 
purple state, first of all, and obviously that's where they wanted everybody. Mm -hmm. And he knew those in advance. But I also thought, I wanna to go to an urban center where there's high upside and high downside risk. So Milwaukee's very blue. So they can run up their votes on the Dem side, but it's not, there aren't a lot of red votes to depress. Whereas in Green, in Brown County and Green Bay, I thought not only is there a large urban center, and it did go for Trump in 2016, um, pretty, pretty big, I thought they can actually operate to depress the red as well. So they have two reasons for going there. So I have two reasons for going there. So I went to Brown County, took my time off from the White House, thought that the apparatus would be in place and thought that I would just be able to really take a mental vacation because it would all be handled and I would just be an observer. But I was the only Trump attorney in Brown County, it turns out. Mm -hmm. So I kind of seized control of the county on election day. I was moving everybody around. I had no election day help. I was seeing people in line saying, I'm a Republican, so glad you're here. I tried to volunteer, but they turned me away or I never got a call. So I think many people, it seems like, made a lot of money raising digital lists of volunteers, but never actually bothered to deploy or implement. Uh, uh, another another red flag, another red another flag. Red flag. Yeah. So it was just a terrible thing. And then of course, in the course of that day, where I'm supposed to be in one place, but I since they started ignoring them and moving people around to basically try to stop the bleeding, I'm at Central Count uh, in that hotel in Green Bay, and I start hearing things about this one staff member who's just pissing the clerks off and he's ordering them around and they don't like him and they resent him. And so I eventually get this person kicked out. That's a story in and of itself, but the guy's name was Michael Spitzer Rubenstein and I had no idea who he was, but he was apparently the Zuckerberg state lead for Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And so by act of God, I put in the right place and get the guy kicked out, which was fortuitous because there's something on the record then about his malfeasance, namely that an actual election official made him leave because of his misconduct. That is something you can never take away. That's on the record, that's there. Um, so he was kicked out. Um, yeah, and then I, I, nobody's listening to me, so I put in an affidavit like a day later. I'm like, I need a contemporaneous recording of all the stuff I've seen. So my affidavit is publicly available, and I forwarded it to the Wisconsin Assembly. And then, you know, a couple months later, I get a call from Janelle Branchen, um, who's the elections chairwoman up there who read my affidavit. I testified. The election starts going. Uh, my friend, Mike Gableman, who I worked with at OPM and actually hired into OPM because that was part of my PPO portfolio, ends up being the special counsel. He's a retired Wisconsin Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. And then I served as his chief of staff for that investigation, which is still to some degree ongoing. Um, we set up, up an apparatus to kind of get all the government documents for how these cities contracted with Facebook and all these places. And to this day, we don't have all the documents because these government workers got the bad signal from the, the Democratic governor and attorney general, and they said, don't comply. So you got the legislature telling governmental actors to give them governmental documents about how they spent the money that the legislature appropriated for them. And these agencies and actors who, who are not you know, being asked to do it in their personal capacity, there's no personal liability, they're declining to do this government-to-government -government information transfer, and that's the subject of a number of ongoing court cases in Wisconsin. So there is a cover-up. Um, it's an immense lift. We issued like 70-plus subpoenas. Um, 
Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a very difficult, thorny problem because we've let our election apparatus across the country kind of be hostily taken over. I mean, me growing up, you know, my grandmother was a Republican Party volunteer in Chicago, for example, and everybody knows, you know, grandma or some lady who's the, who, who has a day job or a stay-at-home mom, and then, you know, every couple of years, she runs the clerk's office. Um, or is a volunteer or runs a precinct and is nonpartisan or maybe partisan or whatever, but they're not professionals, but they know everybody in the area. They know who's registered and who's not. Um, and that's kind of who does it. But what Zuckerberg did, which was smart, was buy out these urban areas to replace a lot of these grandmas with his own paid operatives from out of state. So we had Michael Spitzer Rubenstein, which is, that's not a Wisconsin name. <laughs> we had Ahmad Rivera Wagner, it's not a Wisconsin name. And he's a marquee staffer from Massachusetts. Um, so we had all these sort of carpetbaggers fly in, push grandma to the side. Um, one gentleman testified before Wisconsin, the Wisconsin assembly that his wife was made to cry by this guy. So I mean, these are not nice people. And, um, and it's hard because our laws don't necessarily prohibit. So, so what? That's what? One major. Yeah. So um, this this is all this is all you know fascinating. Uh, you know, especially the with the granularity and the and the lived experience that you're that you're able to you know color in here. Um, and for our listeners, a uh, former guest on this podcast, Molly Hemingway's book um, Rigged, uh, gives the the fifty thousand foot view of the um, the account that that Andrew's providing here. Um, and she does cite me too. Oh, uh, there you go. Uh, uh, fantastic. See, um, but you know, kind of Andrew, t take a step back here. Just what kind of difference in institutional capacity did what you just described require? You know, how how does it get to the point where you can have the coordination to know that you want to get an Ed Markey staffer? in Wisconsin for this duration yes. of time uh, because this job in this particular county has such importance. What is that? I just want to kind of get, where do you think, yeah. like, how does that even happen? Well, I can point to a couple of different things. The answer is I don't know because this is all in the dark because it's in the private sector, whether it's nonprofit, private sector, or in corporations. So I don't know the answer to that. These are things we'll never, never ever know, probably. Um, but certainly, um, high data analytics told people what the sweet spots would be. David Plouffe wrote a book, like How to Defeat Donald Trump, or something like that, where he called out all of these places. You've got these groups that uh, understand uh, the lay of the land, and you've got major mega donors that the right does not have that are willing to overfund these things just to see what works. So I think um, we don't have a coordinated, we don't have any kind of coordination like that. Um, we're getting there. I mean, I certainly talk with different uh, Trump-related people, different nonprofits on the on the other side, different state legislatures and things like that. So I mean, if anyone's in a position to kind of see some of this, it's me. Um, we're getting better at coordinating, but we simply don't have anywhere near the resources. We don't have one donor who comes in and says, I'm going to spend $200 million. Let me get the best people, and we've got to win this. And it's going to be through these nonprofits. So they did that. They did it in a smart way. They never said, we're trying to win it for you know, Joe Biden. What they said was, and I mean, part of this is the kind of one-sided, one-way ratchet of the civil rights laws. You're entitled to do 
minority outreach, which is, if you think about it, targeted demographic party voter outreach that you couldn't do the other way. So it'd be prohibited one way, but the other way, it's all right to do under federal law. So they're kind of in a, in a zone where they've got these legal advantages, they got the money advantages, um, the media is not going to scrutinize them. I mean, I had the Washington Post call my mother when my name shows up on one thing once. Rachel Maddow called me out. That doesn't happen to the left. The left doesn't get called out like this. So they've got every institutional advantage, and we really kind of the point of my substack is to say, like, what are we doing wrong? At a high level, I think we need to be engaging in asymmetrical sort of warfare, um, take out targets of opportunity, things like that. Um, because we don't have the ability to do these big frontal assaults. The Zuckerberg thing was unique, and a lot of people are trying to fix it, and I think a lot of people are raising money trying to fix it, um, so the grift will sort of arise around it. People are doing good things, people are doing useless things, uh, but it's in the consciousness, which I think is the, is the most important that people understand now. Uh, and so it's in, it's, so people are on the lookout now. So I think one of the biggest positive things I saw recently was with, uh, with uh, Youngkin in, in Virginia, and settled consensus seems to be that one of the things that he did right was he flooded the zone with volunteers. Mm -hmm. The volunteers don't have to be smart. They don't even have to know the law. The mere fact that you know there are 10 angry Republican grandmas there saying something looks fishy, whether it's really fishy or not, is enough to deter a heck of a lot of bad conduct. So our voters just need to be more, more motivated. Grift. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought up grifting. It's certainly not um, uh, only a problem for the right. Um, I think, as we saw with the hashtag resistance, um, one could do a uh, do a very good grift um, uh, on the right, uh, pretending to be on the left. Um, so uh, I guess though th there's something that is unique to grifting on the right. Uh, why is it that it seems like um, uh, earnest donors on the right will still give twenty million dollars to something like the Ben Carson Save America Pact that Ben Carson doesn't even know exist? I mean, why 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 is this you know such 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 a greater problem for those on the right? Yeah, I'm not sure that it is. I just think, um, you know, if you look at it like like a, a normal distribution where the left has a much larger mountain that goes much further to the right, um, and it's much more effective if it's effectiveness on the, on the x-axis um, and magnitude on the, on the, on the y-axis, you know, I think that the, the left is just a much larger normal distribution, so maybe the, the tail makes it look like it's much more successful and maybe they have a, a much larger grift pool and i think that's true because you know you go into any any inner city there's you know dmvs with dead weight things like that so um i think probably in other words the percentages may line up on the, on the right and the left it may be the same percentage of grift it may just be that the size of the of the left wing philanthropic pot is just so much larger mm -hmm. that we just never we never get those highly effective you know, cases on the right, but it's a, it's a certainly a good point. Like the donors on the right need to be well advised, um, and they need to be well advised not in a business mentality. Because, and I've written about the ROI trap, the return yep. on investment trap, where I think, you know, when you give money, it cannot be expecting to get the value back. Uh, if you do that, you're 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 not 
thinking big enough and you're not enabling people to do moonshots and things like that. You know, when the left funds something, they fund, they fund people, really, not institutions. Um, it's a patronage thing. You know, if you fund a, a college, it's for education. You don't necessarily expect to get a number of degrees. I mean, it's great if you get degrees, but mm-hmm. it's for funding. It's supposed to be funding education. Or if you fund a museum, it's supposed to be for the, you know, civic participation, not the number of eyeballs on a painting or something like that. So often we get donors who will say, I want to give this money, but I need, you know, 10 reports. I need 10. I need to make sure that there are 10 reports that go out and they have to have, you know, 5 million impressions and I need to hear about this and you need to collate it. And all of that creates overhead costs. Um, and not all of it's bad. I mean, certainly if you're donating money to an organization, you know, to provide for something, you know, maybe you need some reporting, you know, and definitely when I do grants, grant writing and things like that, you make sure there's reporting, but Mm -hmm. um, people do need to be willing to kind of fund things like networking events. I mean, one of the major benefits of the Federalist Society, I think, is that it wasn't ROI focused. It funded, you know, serendipitous networking events where I certainly have gotten jobs and made very good connections and helped, you know, initiate lawsuits and just have so many good things come out of it because I had a a drink paid for by the Federalist Society that, you know, there wasn't someone on the other end of that grant saying, you know, how many, <laughs> you know, how much was that drink worth sort of thing. Right, so, right. yeah, we just need to be, you know, philanthropy is philanthropy. And I think, you know, I recently read a book on philanthropy in America. And, you know, a lot of it goes back to Carnegie, but uh, I think it's ingrained in the small business mindset that if you're giving money, you've got to come ahead, come out ahead. And what you're looking for is you're looking for a small organization that's a value org where you want to give money, you want to give five million, and then three years, you want it to be a gigantic organization, and you can say, my gosh, my five million was really worth way more than that, I'm so pleased. And that's great, but, you know, if that happens, but you can't be planning for it necessarily. Right. I think I think I I think I I've been in the in the scenario of having to explain just what our own work at the James Wilson Institute is about, and I tell them it's it's substantive, but it's also personal. I mean, you don't come to a small nonprofit like you know JWI if you have all the answers already. You know, if anything, we're like a skunk works. We're trying out timeless ideas and applying them to new scenarios, but we're also trying to build. Connections. We're building, you know, the the kinds of fellow travelers that you know wouldn't they, they organically wouldn't you know know to uh, you know trust one another, and um, that's a lo- that's a long term game. It's a personnel uh, game, even d- only down the line. I mean, it's 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 the kind of um, uh, 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 re- it's the kind of relational um, you know value that, as you said in your you know FedSoc example, and FedSoc's great. It's of course you know uh, grown to be you know many many times its initial size, and you know under its umbrella there are plenty of um, you know worthy worthy organizations. But um, uh, uh, part of FedSoc's value is having smaller organizations like James Wilson Institute be able to say you know if you are interested in the Federalist Society, well. 
if, 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 uh, if you're interested in this one type of idea or, or, or these debates within the federal society, go deeper with us, and which is why I think you know, it works as far as you know, uh, an ecosystem, um, which, is, which is healthy and, and, and good because all of us, uh, I think, um, don't have the answers, uh, but we benefit from, from being able to have um, you know, comfort and space in which to um, you know, try, try each other out, see, see where the fits are. Um, and it, it, I think it would be very difficult um, if it weren't for, um, uh, uh, sorry, I think it would be difficult if, if we had to always be thinking about ROI and, and, and whether or not um, you know, everything we do um, you know, has to be measured on a year-to-year -year basis. So a couple quick points. One, I was recently at a retreat, and I don't really go to those, but it was some good people. And uh, it was with an org that's kind of small, and it was nice, and there were some big, big names as far as, as, as people there uh, that were, you know, discussants, you know, positioned as I was. And I asked at one point, you know, just out of curiosity, I kind of thought I knew the answer, and I said, where are the, where are the donors? And they said, well, we don't want donors here because it creates a different vibe. And I thought that was great ah. because it, it was help. And, I, and, and, that, and that's no knock on anybody in particular. It's just to say they consciously thought about it. They said, no, we're not going to, you know, we've got people here that any number of our donors would be, you know, stoked to meet. But we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, ruin the vibe or the opportunity for some of these connections to be made by, by doing that there. And that's totally fine, and that's totally appropriate, and I think that's the kind of thinking that I, I appreciate. The second point I'd like to make is, you know, you're, you should use the word, word ecosystem. I mean, that's, I come from an ecology background. I spent, you know, summers in, in Costa Rica and elsewhere doing field biology. That's kind of how I started college, and I thought I was going to go into So I always think of things in ecosystem terms. You know what's sustainable and you know in any ecosystem you've got different kinds of organisms up and down the chain and i've written about this a bit and you know you can't have if you had only one james wilson institute smaller nimbler ideologically focused or kind of you know um, classically liberal in terms of educational focused teaching students if you had one organization like that that'd be very unfortunate if you've got 10 of them suddenly now you can sustain maybe a small, more action-oriented think tank that's kind of in that constellation. If you've got, you know, 15 of them, they're not redundant. Now you're, you know, maybe a large enough ecosystem to be supporting a, a federalist society or something mm -hmm. like that. So I just think it takes all kinds and, you, you know, all boats are, you know, the rising tide raises all ships or however you want to describe it. You know, you need to have a, a very robust ecosystem so that, you know, James Wilson and the Gray Center could get together and then have a big event that can then spark something else and blah blah blah. Um, and these are things you can't really you can't really plan for. And so it needs a big, robust civil sector, you know, to to sustain. And in the work that you're doing right now, Andrew, is is, is you're 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 really trying to um, support. Uh, you know some of these you know new institutions not just in the conservative legal movement but these new institutions that are 
for lack of a better term, they are they are dreaming big, but they are right. They're they're not always um, you know, able to kind of you know foresee which are the most fruitful paths. And so you right. know you're 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 providing legal advice, but you're also providing you know uh, strategic advice from from your past experience. Right. Um, you tell us a little bit about you know the work you're doing uh, uh, right now. Sure, and and I, I had forgotten, but this is my third point, <laughs> which is. Um, related to this, which is uh, you kind of need to know where you are in the life cycle of a movement to understand what needs to be done. And I think we're very much in a networking and institution building phase, mm. which is very, which is great. I mean, so several years ago when I left, I left the Trump administration once, sort of quasi in protest and, um, and went to the, to the Gray Center, which was great. It was great for my family. It was great academically. Um, but while I was there, I got connected to some folks that were considering setting up some sort of populist-leaning think tank. And I met with a lot of people who I'm, I'm sure you know, um, and it was pretty pretty high level. It was great. And, um, and it was like, well, we really need to set this up. And so we talked about it, talked about it, talked about it. I put some plans together, but it was difficult because just, it just didn't feel right. Um, now we've got like four of them, the space is crowded, um, you know, meeting with people all the time, young kids that are setting up things. So it's, in other words, the time wasn't right. The time is right now. Mm. We are building things and it doesn't take, there's no discussion. People just want to do things. And so the animal spirits have changed. You know, the cycle in history has changed and we're in a, in a much better place now than we were two or three years ago. So I'm seeing a lot of redundancy and overlap, but that's totally healthy. Whereas a few years ago, it would be myself or other people with a, a small pot of money, no donors really care, and you're kind of frozen with the battle plans, but not the action. So I think we have a lot of action now. Every day I'm meeting with people, setting up C3s, setting up C4s, um, PACs, you know, things like that. We've got a lot going on, and it's great. So in my day job, I'm at a firm, small firm, with three other friends called Compass Legal, and we basically do, you know, nonprofit law. We are a nonprofit, but we do not. We do nonprofit law and um, and some campaign work and some other odds and ends, um, which I won't talk about now. But but basically, we're we're trying to be sort of shared, somewhat shared legal services for the right. Um, and we've got a lot of great clients, and there's a lot of I'm just I'm, it's it's exciting. It's, I mean, you know, I had that year and a half when I was out of the admin. I did the Wisconsin election investigation with Justice Gableman. Mm -hmm. I had some other work that I did. I had a, an anchor private sector regulatory client, which was great and more than paid the bills, but it's really good, finally, to be able to both um, pay the bills and also to be doing exclusively movement work, which is what we're doing. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. and. Yeah, there's legal advice because there, you know, there's tax and there's uh, corporate law and set up and take down, but there's all the strategic advice, you know, knowing who all the players are. So, I mean, for example, I know there are like five orgs now trying to get into the space that myself and my team were in in the White House, which is staffing for the next administration. Right, so I right. know all the people that are in this space. I know there's a heck of a lot of overlap and it's helpful because I can kind of see where things are going. Um, and where the resources are needed and where the effectiveness will be. And yeah, I, I, more redundancy, I think, is good than less. You know, we, we can use 10 organizations on the right to do FOIA, 
you know, we could use 10, we can have 10 organizations on the right to do religious liberty, the more I think the barrier at this point. So because there is a lot of overlap and redundancy, in particular in this push to make sure that the uh, problem of um, uh, not enough uh, evaluation of staffers uh, before they you know, landed in a Republican administration um, that wasn't addressed, um, you probably you know, can see that, okay, there are some redundancies here, but there are other I issues or problems that are not being addressed. Is part of your strategic advice to these organizations to refine their missions, to say, look, this organization that you've heard of, they're doing a better job of X, why don't you try, you know, uh, Y and Z? Um, because that's where yes. you're gonna have your value add uh, be appreciated a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the other day I was talking with a new org to set up where these folks are in the, have, a, have kind of a constellation of, of, of organizations in their, in their mind and they're saying one of the things we'd like to do is help train um, candidates more on the populist right. And I said, well, do you know these people? Do you know these people? Do you know these people? And they had great answers because they actually knew. So it was kind of like they were giving me, I was kind of like a VC guy, and they were giving me their, and I was helping them refine their elevator pitch, and I was telling them the market. I was giving them marketing advice, and I was saying, this is a competitor, this is a competitor, this is a competitor. Mm -hmm. And it was comforting to me to hear them be able to address each one of the organizations that I raised. And the ones that they had trouble raising, or addressing, we would talk about and then kind of strategically game out. So, I mean, that's exactly the game play, or the, at least that I play, and that I think anybody should play if they're, if they're in this space, is helping people find their strategic vision, certainly. On the other hand, um, you know, not everybody's my client, and, it, you know, with redundancy, often is competition for branding, um, competition for closeness to the former president, competition mm -hmm. for all sorts of things. Um, yeah, I think I see that, that with Heritage and AFPI, for example, they'll jockey for different things or, or other words too, you know? So it's not, it's not them, I'm just saying that um, sometimes you want to go into a lane because you're trying to monopolize. Um, you know, I've written about this before, you know, one of the things that they train you to do in fundraising is to always be positive. You know, oh yeah, you should give to them, we love them. Uh, because that's kind of a dopamine hack for people and they'll give to them and give to you. Yeah. You know, and so everyone kind of understands that it's, it's Pareto optimal to just always be positive. Um, my own view, since thankfully I'm not in that game, is I'm kind of almost always negative. I'm just like, well, this is what they don't do well, this is what they don't do well, um, you know, this is what's missing. And so it's great to be in a space where I can kind of uh, help, help, help facilitate filling those gaps, basically. Yeah, but you're not doing it from a place of being uh, black-pilled. You're doing it from a place of we have our most precious resource uh, as time, and there's not nearly enough time to be wasted and on redundancy. There are not nearly yeah. enough people, I think. That and yeah, that too. Yep. Yeah, the, the biggest thing is, is, is people because, you know, if you had $500,000, you know, to hire a staffer, you could get just about anybody, you know, but, but you don't have those resources. So really what you're looking for is people that are so motivated with the mission that they work for free um, and they've got high enough value that over time they, and this is kind of is the ROI trap a little bit, but you, you really are looking for people 
that are highly motivated on their own that are almost immune to, to monetary pressures. Um, and when you find those people, it's like, just get out of their way, you know, help them and kind of get out of their way because they're going to be creating value wherever they go. Oh, I was in a meeting once with uh, with Larry Arn and uh, talking about institution builders, uh, Claremont, uh, and then you know the uh, uh, the the, the you know, success of, of Hillsdale College um, after he became president. But uh, in the meeting, uh, somebody asked uh, Larry, "What's the secret to your success?" And and Larry said, "Look, I get good people, and then I let them do their thing, and I'm I'm never." Uh, I think he said something like, you know, I'm, I'm never the reason for their success, but I know when I'm an impediment to it. Um, right. and, I, and I thought that was a, that was a, that was a really, um, you know, uh, uh, humble, humble way of putting it because I think it masked a lot of the, on the front end, <laughs> the evaluation that I'm sure Larry and, uh, and, and the team at, uh, uh, at, at Hillsdale, um, you know, performed. But, um, there is, I think, something, uh, to be said for, um, just on our own, Wilder, while we on the right are in our own uh, you know, wilderness moment right now, um, looking at, in particular, you know, the people that we staff our institutions with um, and then you know, the, the mission of those institutions as they um, yeah. you know, con- you know, continue, because uh, you know, uh, uh, for, I think for a very long time, those on the right you know, sort of thought that you know, everything uh, was just kind of inevitable. Um, but you know, one, of the, one of the great values of, of uh, you know, President uh, Trump's tenure is that it showed that you, know, you must expand your, 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 your expectation of what's possible. Um, yeah. it's, it's a lot greater than, than, than what you may think at any one moment. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and, and on that point of, of, of staffing, um, I think it was Elon Musk who said something like, many people have said a quote similar to this in, in one way or another, but he basically said, I would love at some point in my life to lose all my money so I'd find out who my friends are. <laughs> and similarly, um, you know, after the election, I was sort of like, the upside here is now Trump will find out and the admin and the movement will find out who their friends are. Um, you know, we've certainly seen people like Bill Crystal and others go off the reservation. I think that was kind of inevitable. But the winnowing is a good thing, and um, and it's great. And so when I was in the in the White House BPO, sort of their most senior guy by long shot, um, you know, I was the only lawyer clerk or anything like that. We had another sort of you know House Judiciary staffer, um, more junior guy, and. Uh, so, anyways, we set up this process to to interview all of the all of the all of the political appointees, basically, and and it's somewhat of an art, somewhat of an interrogation technique, it's somewhat of a science as well. Um, but you're you're trying to find out, you know, are they on the team or not? And if we won the election, a lot of these people would have stayed in, you know. Um, Politics kind of would have continued as usual. I was hearing the other day some person saying, "Oh, we had plans if if Trump had won that like the day after the election, we would be talking about entitlement reform or something, or something like that, which is just running inside you politically." You're, you're talking about the second Trump term, not the second Bush forty three term, right? I'm, I'm getting I'm getting uh, some some flashbacks here. Right, it would have been completely toned up, and I think antithetical to everything that he stood for. All of this is just a long way around saying if we had won, 
you know, the institution had already been captured in a sense. And so being thrown out on your butts has, has its advantages. So I'm, I'm looking at this time in between, and we're already over a third of the way through the Biden presidency now. Um, you know, inshallah. Um, there are huge advantages to, to, to being out on our butts, and we're finding out who our friends are, finding out who the high performers are, finding out what institutions are good, you know, helping reset organizations you know, like, like Heritage and others in order to be on a much better footing going forward. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. Well, you know, uh, Andrew, I guess you know we'll we'll end with the uh, with the last question being, you know, why do you remain optimistic even as you um, you may be a, a, a pessimist when it comes to um, you know uh, understanding the inherent limitations of, of some of our existing uh, organizations? Um, like, what 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 sort of you know keeps you the happy warrior um, and hopeful? answer that I'm kind of constitutionally compelled to do certain things I'm kind of I had no I had no you know self-preservation instinct I'm kind of a zealot so I'm just happy to be helping movement and um, I have a lot of and I'm just seeing that there are many more people like myself not of my generation so much or our generation you're, you're a little younger than myself but not it's more the zoomers I think I've seen a lot of young guys in their 20s and gals um, so I'm kind of seeing the generational shift, and it's very pleasing to me to see it happening because that is what has been needed, that energy coming in. So really, it's, it's pessimistic in the sense that, I'm, you know, nothing really changes in the long run. This is not, we don't live in Zion. You know, this is not, we're not on the other side of the veil. Mm -hmm. Politics is not heaven on earth. But on the other hand, um, we're kind of seeing a cresting of a new, of a new generation. So I'm optimistic in that sense. But at least in my lifetime, I'll be able to see some some helpful political reset globally and in the U.S. Well, Andrew, this has been you know fascinating and, and wide ranging, and um, for all of our listeners. Um, We'll make sure that there's a link to your Substack, uh, and if you enjoyed Andrew's commentary with us today, uh, uh, highly recommend him as a follow on Twitter. Um, you know, hot takes uh, from the uh, uh, conservative legal movement and beyond, um, but uh, but also uh, takes you will not hear other any other place. So, um, you know, Andrew's a dear friend, and uh, we're grateful to have him on our podcast. Thank you. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.